Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Friends, across the past few weeks, we've been discussing God's law and how human beings respond to it in different ways, and none of them are particularly good. We talked about fighting against God's law, and we looked at Korah's rebellion back in Numbers chapter 16 to see what it's like when people look at God's law and then do the opposite in total rebellion. It did not end well for Korah and those in his rebellion. We talked about fleeing God's law, and we saw how Jonah tried to run from God, but God chased him down like the hound of heaven. Jonah tried to flee from God's law and its demands, but he could not get away. Today I want to tell you about a third way that we can respond to God's law that's a bit more complex than the other two. Because you can fight against God's law, and you can fail at it. You can run from God's law, and you can fail at it. But the third thing you can do is try to obey God's law and fail at it. (laughs) Those are our three options, sadly. You can try as hard as you can to obey God's law, but even a cursory glance of God's law and all that it entails teaches us that such a feat is nearly impossible for we mortal humans to accomplish. Here's what I mean. We had three readings this morning, uh, four readings in total, three, uh, two gospel readings, a psalm, and our reading from Philippians. And I want to look at those readings excluding the psalm reading this morning to get the fullest, uh, the fullest understanding of what it means to obey God's law. Because if we look at these uh, readings together, we're going to see the real cost, the real cost of total obedience. And it's going to go beyond what you and I or any other human being are willing to give. By the end of our time together this morning, we're going to see that we can't run from God's law, we can't fight against God's law, and we can't obey God's law. We find ourselves in quite a pickle. Something is going to have to give. So let's get this last leg of the journey out of the way. We can't fight God's law, we can't run from God's law, but we can't obey God's law. And now we're going to look at Jesus' time during Holy Week to see how one person managed to do it one time, how Jesus managed to obey God's law one time. We're going to look at everything that it entailed, and we're going to look at ourselves and say, wow, we don't measure up. That's what we're going to do this morning. And our first reading today uh, was outside. It was our Palm Sunday reading, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. (laughs) Jesus had visited Jerusalem a number of times during his life and during his earthly ministry. He was a devout Jewish man. He would likely have traveled to Jerusalem at least once a year, maybe up to three times a year, to participate in the religious life of the nation. Uh, He was, um, there was something different about this time when he entered the city, however because his ministry had been going for three years and he had become a publicly known man. And during those three years as, the, um, as, as he entered Jerusalem, people knew him as a miracle healer, 
He could heal the sick. He could exercise demons um, that those who were demon-possessed found freedom and relief. Um, indeed, in one of the Gospels, they say after Jesus multiplied the bread and the fishes together, the very next thing that the people decide to do is crown him king. And Jesus has to run away before they can make that happen on the spot. So Jesus has bread, he has fish, he's, he's a well-known name throughout the entire nation. And this is Passover. Jesus is enter, entering the city during Passover. People know who he is, people know his reputation, and the people have high expectations for him. Perhaps Jesus is a revolutionary figure. Perhaps Jesus is our Messiah. And what do we mean by Messiah? Perhaps Jesus will be the figure that's going to kick out the Roman Empire and bring political freedom to our people, which we haven't had for generations. So people come and they see Jesus entering into the city, and they get very, very excited. They think that the city full of pilgrims from all over the world, swelling to four and five times its normal size, uh, this is the perfect time for Jesus to come in and to rally the crowds and to kick out the Romans. His disciples are overwhelmed in excitement, and so as they enter into the city, they take off their cloaks. Now, this is important. You and I have coats, um, right? We, we have coats, and so we perhaps know but the tradition, maybe, it used to be, that a man would take his coat off and put it over a mud puddle for a lady to kind of daintily step over to get onto the curb without getting her feet wet. Um, you can do that if you have multiple coats, I think, or a really good dry cleaner. I've never done it, um, but I, I, I'm told you can if you can clean your coat up. Um, the people of ancient Israel, they had one cloak. They only had one. Um, they did not have a full wardrobe. They had like one change of clothes. And so when they took off their cloaks to lay them in the road, that was a very valuable thing that they were laying in the road. Remember how the, the, the Roman centurions at the foot of the cross are gambling? They're throwing dice uh, to try to win Jesus' uh, cloak that he was wearing, his clothes. It was an item of value. And so they're throwing their one and only cloaks on the ground so that Jesus and the donkey he's riding, they don't have to have their feet be deigned to be disturbed by the dust of the earth. They're throwing down these valuable things. Jesus, of course, rides in on a donkey. He's trying to communicate that uh, those who ride on donkeys, kings who ride on donkeys, they come on missions of peace. If you want to come on a mission of war, you ride a giant stallion uh, into the city. But if you're coming on a mission of peace, you ride a donkey. He's trying to keep the crowds focused, but he's not telling them to be quiet. He says, yeah, I, I am the king. Not the king you think I am, but I am the king. And as he's riding into the city, uh, people climb palm trees and they cut off the palm fronds, right? We have like one palm leaf here. Everyone was cutting off these palm leaves. They had these massive big fans of leaves that they were fanning the hot Jesus in the desert sun with to keep him cool as he walked by. Because if anybody deserved to be relieved from the heat of the day, if anyone was special, it was Jesus. They were waving palm fronds, and that was another way of saying, with their palm fronds and their flags, they're saying, this man is the king. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. I am the king. I'm not the king you think I am, but indeed, I am the king. So here comes Jesus into Jerusalem. He's a healer. He exercises demons. He is a man who is um, morally virtuous in every single way. He is a man who could multiply bread and wine to feed the people. If you were looking for a king, 
Jesus had everything except for maybe the pedigree, but of course we know him to be the son of God, so, you know, he actually does have the pedigree. Um, but he's, he's doing all of these things, the people, they want the king, and so as they come in, um, uh, uh, they, they say to Jesus, you are our king, look how good and virtuous and righteous you are, Jesus. We want you to be our king. Um, and if you, we just stopped there, we would see Jesus come into Jerusalem, and we would think, and the people made him as king, and they, made, they lived happily ever after. Sadly, that's not where our story ends. Um, if we stop there, we have an incomplete picture. Because the last week of Jesus' life is by and far the most stressful. Because in the last week of his life, men with no virtue begin to attack and harass the man who has virtue. Jesus comes into the great city, and from that very moment, people begin to pester him with damning theological questions, saying things like, hey, what do you think about this political hot topic, Jesus? Hey, what do you think about this political hot topic? What do you think about this theological hot topic? Trying to discredit him, trying to put him in a box to make people not like him. And Jesus, for what it's worth, he gives it right back. He begins to tell the people things like, Hey, um, these religious people attacking me, um, I'm going to say it in a parable form, but these guys are bad news and they're no good, uh, and they're probably going to hell, so don't listen to them. And you're like, whoa, Jesus, why not do, you know, he's not making friends. And so from the very beginning, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, uh, from that very moment, people begin to plot for his downfall. They want to ruin his ministry. And by the time we get to Good Friday, we see that they've succeeded. They have succeeded. Um, you know, Jesus, um, the text says every night he's in um, Jerusalem, he leaves the city and goes about a mile away to a place called the Mount of Olives. He doesn't stay in the city, presumably because if he stayed in the city, they could find him at night and they could, you know, um, uh, assassinate him in his sleep. That's the level of tension that's happening right now. Every night he leaves Jerusalem and goes up on a mountainside. And he goes up on the mountainside every night, and that's where the Mount of Olives is. That's where he does the Last Supper. And it's only because one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, um, goes and finds the people and says, Hey, I know where Jesus is staying. I can hand him over to you. I know where he is. Bring the mob when I tell you to. It's only when that happens that they're able to find him and arrest him. We tend to think that people who follow God's law are welcomed like kings into the holy city. And that's simply not the case. If you follow your Old Testament, there are plenty of God's prophets who lived virtual, virtuous lives, uh, completely devoted to God, and they were squashed by evil men. Think of Joseph, someone who was rejected by his brothers and um, falsely accused of assaulting the boss's wife. Think of Jeremiah, who was beaten, put in the stocks and humiliation, and thrown in a well to die. And those weren't the same event. They were three separate events that, that happened in Jeremiah's life. Think of Daniel, who was thrown into a pit of starved and hungry lions for not worshiping the statue of a pagan king. The people who obey God's law and God's virtue, they, they live lives of God's virtue. They're not kings. They're targets. They're not kings, they're targets. Um, there's a psychologist who once pointed out, he said that every virtue and every value is inherently a judge. And when somebody comes along and embodies the best that virtue has to offer, we tend to feel judged in their presence. Because those people who live lives of godly um, living, 
uh, and godly virtue, those people, uh, we look at them and see how far short we fall of what God actually has in store, what God wants for us. And we respond with our own moral failings. And so Jesus, when he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, uh, things look great. Everyone worships him. They, they bring out the king palm branches. Um, but by Friday, the tables have turned. Um, this is our second reading. We find Jesus on Good Friday as the defendant in a trial before the low-level regional governor named Pilate. And the question of Jesus' moral character and obedience to the law, God's law, the law of Moses, and Roman law, all three, uh, the question of his obedience to those three laws has been examined all morning. He has not slept this night, friends. He was arrested. He was brought to trial. He was beaten before a night court of people who did not care for him. And finally, um, it's only through a mob justice, breaking and cracking the Roman criminal justice system, um, that his enemies are able to have their sway. What does Pilate say? Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Three times at least, Pilate says this in our reading, and he's trying to bargain for Jesus' life, but the crowds will have nothing of it. Nothing deserving of death. And that's the thing. Luke is pulling language from the Old Testament. He's using language from Deuteronomy, where Moses says, do this and you shall live in relation to God's law. Moses says, do God's law and you shall live. Here is Jesus. He has done God's law and the law of Rome and the law of Moses. And yet the crowds want him dead. He has done nothing deserving of death. And so this group, this crowd composed of Jesus's enemies, peer pressures Pilate into a um, aberration of justice. And Jesus Christ, the man who followed God's law, is crucified. The human heart is very fickle, friends. Here is a man in Jesus Christ whose virtue was evident to all, and yet it caused a murderous mob to rise up and demand his execution, uh, and their political pressure is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Still in these final hours, as we read today, Jesus does not let go. He does not resent the world. He does not resent um, his situation. He continues to do good in the midst of his death. Um, he teaches these weeping widows who are following him. They, he says to them, don't be sad for me, but be sad for this people who have condemned me. He says um, to, the murder, to, the, to the people who are crucifying him actively, the people murdering him and executing him, he says, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. Forgiveness to the people who are executing a, an egregious offense to the criminal justice system? Really? And then finally, of course, there's the criminal hanging next to him on the cross and he in this moment offers him grace and mercy and says uh, today you will be with me at my father's side um, if you thought following God's law friends would raise you up and make you um, uh, raise your stature in life um, that isn't the case um, in our Philippians reading we see of course the great tra trajectory of Jesus's life which is not this gradual up 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 success success <laughs> that we think it is. Um, we tend to think that we do better and better and better and we get better and better and better at life and we're, we practice being virtuous and we get better and better and better. 
And yet, what does the text tell us about Jesus' trajectory? Theologians call this passage the great humiliation of Jesus. Um, Because although he was equal to God, right? Um, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, humbling himself by becoming obedient. I can't go any lower. I'm going to knock my head against the podium. Um, Becoming obedient to death, and even then death on a cross. It's down, 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 down. That's the pattern of Jesus. God to human, human to servant, servant to death, death on a cross. It's this great self-emptying work of Jesus, um, who died, um, a right, who lived a righteous, right, uh, lived a righteous life, and died an unrighteous death. This is why in the church, by the way, um, the Church Universal, we have these cat, this catalog of Christians who live virtuous lives in line with God's will, and they came to terrible early ends as a result. Um, I think of popular figures like Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, the uh, anti-Nazi um, theologian in uh, Germany um, in 1930s. He began a theological resistance. He started a group of churches, helped fund a group of churches that was going to oppose Nazism in Germany before World War II. Uh, and um, he was part of uh, a, a secret seminary that met in the middle of the woods that was training students to be pastors uh, who would then go out to teach in churches that opposed Nazism as an ideology. And he was shipped off to a concentration camp and died at the age of 39 when he was caught. Think of Oscar Romero. He's a figure that's a little less well-known than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but an important figure nonetheless. He was the Catholic Archbishop of San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador. And uh, Romero was an advocate for peace during the Salvadoran Civil War, which was a 12-year-long conflict um, that was leftist guerrillas against an authoritarian government. Um, 75,000 people were killed in this little South, um, South American country. Uh, and uh, it displaced more than one out of every six people in the entire nation. And um, he, what he was was he was doing this popular radio show where he would preach and then he would teach and then he would give the news about who had died and how they had died and where the violence was in the nation. And people were tuning in. Something like 75% of the country listened to him and his radio program. And he was beloved. People loved Archbishop uh, Romero. And uh, one Sunday while he was in a small church officiating over mass, a gunman drove up in a car, kicked open the doors of the church, and shot him while he was serving communion, and he died. Um, I think of someone like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right, the civil rights activist. Um, the story goes that in an autopsy of Dr. King, uh, the coroner found that, you know, he died at 39. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm coming close to 39. 39 is not an old age to die. Um, and, and so Dr. King, he died. The Reverend Dr. King died. Um, he was assassinated, of course, um, on April 4th. Uh, um, and, and there was a sense where they, they, they looked at what he gave the civil rights movement. They looked at his heart when they did the autopsy. And the coroner said... Um, this man is 39 years old. His heart looks like he's a 60-year-old man. That's what the stress and the anxiety and the hardship of his life did to him and his body. It completely destroyed his body. So even if he wasn't assassinated, there was a question of how much longer his body could have held up in the work of civil rights activism. So many voices right, of God's mercy. We have these Old Testament prophets who were stoned for telling the truth. We have these uh, sort of church-era saints who were killed in the same way. But so many people live virtuous lives 
and the result is an early and sometimes brutal death. There's a reason why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, right? What does he say? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness doesn't get you a crown, friends. It makes you a target. And we see this most in Jesus' ministry. Um, That's what is revealed to us today. And let's be honest, friends. Nobody in this room, uh, no one's waving palm fronds for us today. Um, No one's welcoming us by throwing their nice designer suit sport coat on the ground so that our feet can be kept clean. Um, That when we look at Jesus, really our only option is to see what the virtuous life looks like and how far our life is and measuring up. The rocks would not cry out for us if things were silent. Jesus is the model for it looks like to obey and appease God's law. And really our only recourse is to gaze upon his success with awe and humility. Because if this is what Jesus' life looks like, if that's what it's required to enter heaven, then we are all done for. We can't run from God's law. We can't fight against God's law. These things are simply not options for us. Um, Because, well, we can't obey God's law either. What is left? Um, This is the great gift of Holy Week, because we are given an answer on Easter Sunday. Turns out that God is not only in the business of making laws, he's also in the business of forgiving lawbreakers. And if you follow Jesus for the rest of this Holy Week, you'll have a chance to see and watch how God makes that happen. You can't run from God's law, you can't fight God's law, and you can't obey God's law. But you can ask for forgiveness. And so even though um, we have much to learn this week about how that works, we can start that in this very moment. I invite you to open your bulletins, friends, and turn past the Passion reading to page 8. On Palm Sunday, friends, normally in our service we begin by saying the creed and then saying our prayers. Instead, this afternoon, this morning, I invite you to kneel as you are able and we'll continue our service with our confession of sin and say and ask God for forgiveness now. I invite you to kneel as you are able. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a Pennsylvania.